<coughs> Before we jump in, <coughs> I just want to share a story that brought me great joy, and I hope it will do the same for you. I had an opportunity to talk to a, a young woman the other day, and um, she had grown up Catholic and had just recently had a, a transformative encounter with Jesus, and she found herself in a Presbyterian church. And as we were talking, um, she was telling me about her church, and she probably referenced it 10 to 15 times, and brand new, so uh, it was not Presbyterian. It was the Presbyterian church. And it was the most endearing, sweet thing, because over and over she kept talking about how excited she was to be Presbyterian. And in my ears at the time, apparently you're not finding the same humor in it, um, it was quite funny. But I, I just couldn't help but think how uh, sometimes we get so nailed into these like specific things and it was so sweet to just hear her heart that was loving Jesus and so enjoying the Presbyterian church. So, there we go. Uh, um, I hope everybody had a, a joyful, celebratory Martin Luther King um, Jr. Day. What a, what a joy it was and what an honor to, uh, to celebrate with all of you. A um, number of different emotions ran through the day, um, joy and, and gratitude, but I also ended up reflecting a bit on... Um, uh, the churches of the past and the churches of generations past. And it made me sort of wonder about these churches that were theologically sound, uh, doctrinally sound, um, but didn't stand with the civil rights movement and uh, ended up propagating racism. And it made me still sort of question and wonder what, what was happening? Like what was actually taking place in those churches that had this doctrinal depth and soundness but, but in action and in living it out, they, the two didn't mesh. Um, and Paul dealt with churches like that all the time. Um, and he dealt with issues because the culture presses in. And it made me question sort of, you know, what is, what is our generational blindness? Do we have a generational blindness? Some, something that, that we think we've just kind of got, and it is the way it is, and we've got sound theology and doctrine, but are we, are we missing places. And Paul and, and Scripture constantly call us to a deeper godliness and to a deeper holiness. Um, so uh, I've been reading through the book of Ephesians, and uh, what I'd like to do is actually take us uh, pretty quickly through the first four chapters, kind of lay out the argument and the train of thought with which Paul comes. Um, and then I'd like to sit in the middle of Ephesians chapter 4 uh, for a few minutes. Um, but just a quick word on the book of Ephesians, setting some context so we know to whom Paul was writing. Um, he's writing around 60 AD, about 27 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He's writing as a prisoner in Rome, and he's writing to this Gentile church in Ephesus. Um, Ephesus was one of the, the top five major uh, cities in the ancient Near East, um, a major byway between East and West. Um, and in Ephesus, you had the Temple of Artemis. Um, they, they even said that they were nurturers of Artemis. It, it really um, seeped into the very nature and the very heart of what it meant to be an Ephesian, this worship of the goddess um, Artemis. So it was, if you will, a truly secular city. And Paul ends up there and they preach the gospel and, and people are transformed and come to saving faith in Jesus. And so Paul, when he's in prison in Rome, is writing back, to the Ephesian church, and he's addressing a number of things. He's addressing mystery uh, of what it means for Jews and Gentiles to be together. He's um, addressing 
holiness and is addressing moral ethics and how they play out in their lives. So um, we're just going to kind of walk through the first four chapters. And a lot of what's going to happen is Paul is going to tell us, as he tells the Ephesians, who we are. We're fiercely independent people. And a lot of times we don't like to be told who we are. But sometimes we have to and must be told who we are because who we are impacts what we do. And remembering and knowing who we are impacts everything we do in our lives. God has chosen, predestined, redeemed, and forgiven us, adopting us as sons and daughters and marking us with the Holy Spirit, all that we, all that we might be for the praise of of his glory. Now that's language that we know, but I want you to hear it. That is who you are. You are redeemed, you are chosen, you are predestined, and you are forgiven if you are in Christ. You are adopted as a son or a daughter, and you are marked with the Holy Spirit of God. That's a fact. That, that is a, a reality. That is who you are as a person. But sometimes that reality is is hard to see. It's hard to remember. And so Paul prays for us, and he tells us, here's my prayer. My prayer and my desire is that God will help us to see, that he'll give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know God better and that the eyes of our hearts will be enlightened that we might know the hope that we have in him and that we might know the power that he has for us who believe. He prays, I know that it's hard to sometimes see that, to hold on to that, but I'm going to pray that God will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know God, that the eyes of your hearts will be enlightened, that you might know the hope that is ours as his. We might also know the power that is ours by virtue of the Holy Spirit. Now hear this, you were dead in sin but God has made you alive in Jesus. You deserved wrath. You deserved judgment. But God extended grace. And he extended it, one reason, because he loves you. That's how you were saved, grace through faith. And you did nothing to earn it, so there's nothing to brag about. You were made alive in Christ to do good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. We were given life so that we might in turn give our lives away. Do you know that? We were given life so that we might give our lives away. Not only were you dead in sin, you were Gentiles. You were an entire group of people who were cut off from the promises of God. But at the cross, Jesus reconciled both Jews and Gentiles to himself. With himself as the cornerstone, he made us both into one people, creating a temple by which he would live by his Holy Spirit. And it was God's mysterious plan all alike from the beginning of history to make Gentiles heirs with Israel, one people sharing the promises in Christ. And in Christ, through faith, now hear this because this is crazy, In Christ and through faith, we are given the ability to approach God 
with freedom and confidence. The creator and sustainer of the world, we by virtue of being called his sons and daughters, are given freedom and confidence to approach the living God. And then Paul prays again. He says, as people with access to God, I pray that God will strengthen you with power through the Holy Spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. And I pray that you'll have power to grasp the depth of Christ's love that has saved you and that you will know this love that surpasses knowledge. He says, I pray that you will grasp the magnitude of this love. Know in your bones this love that surpasses knowledge. Boiled down, Paul is praying that we will know who we are in Christ. That's his desire for us, to know who we are in Christ Jesus. So, as he sits in jail for proclaiming this truth, here's what he calls the Ephesians and us to do. He says, you must live lives worthy of your calling. Be humble and gentle and patient with one another because you are one body. As you have one spirit, one hope, one faith, one baptism, one God, you must live lives worthy of your calling. So we pick up in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Now, Paul's writing to Gentile converts. He's writing to people who've grown up in what we would again call a super secular culture. It's what they and what we are called out of, into, and out of. That way of life is marked by this. Here's what it's marked by. It's marked by futile thinking, darkened understanding, and separation from God. Paul talks about it in different contexts in Romans 1, but it boils down to this. What it means is not acknowledging God in either gratitude or praise, and one's thinking then becomes futile, and understanding becomes darkened. This futility, this futility of thought, not being able to see the way that the world functions, not being able to see how God is in control and sovereign, not acknowledging God as creator and sustainer. The darkened, the darkened um, uh, reality with which we view all of the world, our understanding is like, like understanding that has uh, like a blanket over it. But it comes because of ignorance. Darkened understanding and futile thinking is a result of ignorance. And the ignorance comes from something very specific. Listen to what the ignorance comes from. It results from the hardening of hearts. Okay, so when we talk about a hard heart, what are we talking about here? There's a great scene in The Breakfast Club. Uh, Andrew, Claire, Brian, Allison, uh, John, they're all sitting up. Um, if you've seen the movie, you know the scene well. They're, they're sitting up at the top of the library, and they're talking about how and why they had detention for the day. Um, they go through a whole series of things, and then at the end, uh, Andrew, who's, who's the wrestler, he's the jock, um, he says, man, are we going to be like our parents? 
And Claire, the, the princess, the prom queen, she says, not me, ever. And Allison, the freak, she says, it's unavoidable. It just happens. And Claire says, what happens? And Allison says, when you grow up, your heart dies. And Bender says, who cares? And Allison says, I care. Our, heart, our hearts die, not when we grow up, but when we start listening to them. The hardening of hearts that Paul is talking about is this progressive inability of the conscience to convict us of wrongdoing. The hardening of our hearts is the progressive reality that when we don't listen to them, they begin to harden. And when we don't allow our hearts to convict us of sin, they begin to grow hard. See, our consciences are meant to serve as witnesses to the law of God that is within us. And when habitually ignored, they harden and they stop working like they should. When that happens, when we allow our hearts to get hard because we don't listen to them, we don't allow them to convict us of sin, we stop heeding our conscience. When that happens, you lose sensitivity and you give yourself over to sensuality or debauchery. And when Paul talks about that, here's what he's talking about. He's talking about sin that is proud, sin that has no regard for shame or fear or respect for others or for self. And that type of sin does something to you. That type of sin leads you to life being all about filling the gaping wound that's in our souls, and we become greedy. Not, not, not money greedy, but life greedy. We work to take any and everything to consume and fill our souls because we are flailing toward destruction the whole time. Paul talks about a clear conscience over and over. It's a theme that every time I see it in Scripture, it pulls me in because I so badly want what he says he had. Listen to this. In Acts 24, he's before the governor. He's before Felix, and he says, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. In 1 Corinthians 4, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. He's talking to Timothy. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. Conscience, as night and day, I constantly remember you in prayers. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. So I ask you, because I've asked myself, how is your conscience? Is it clear before God? Or have you been ignoring it? Have you been slowly pushing it aside, allowing your heart to slowly grow hard to the call and to the direction of God. Don't do that. Our hearts and our consciences are not to be trifled with. They are gifts of God that allow us to hear the law of God, allow us to be challenged and exhorted and encouraged by the Spirit of God. But that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Jesus and were taught in him accordance with the word and the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The way of life you learned from us 
was both the truth about Jesus and the ethical implications of being a follower of Jesus. And this is always, always, always the case. Along with theological truth comes ethical implication. The two can never be divorced so that theological truth always leads to behavioral realities. Or at least it always should lead to behavioral realities. It's the case of identity. Because of who we are, because of the truth we know, we should then live in light of those truths. We know that, right? Just, just anecdotally in life. There are expectations that go along with being certain things. If you are a soccer player, right? You are expected to practice. You cannot say, I'm a soccer player and not ever practice because you won't play and eventually you won't be on the team. You can know this thing that you are, but the way that you act has to flow out of the thing that you are. Therefore, you have to put on the new self. You put off the old, which is corrupt in its desires. We're renewed in our mind by the Holy Spirit, which is something only he can do. And you put on this new self, which is created to be righteous and holy like God. So, so hear, hear this. You're to put on the new self. And that new self is created to be like God, to be holy and righteous. And I'll tell you that if Paul stopped right there and just left it, I would feel hopeless because I know that I can't do that. Right? I don't, I don't think any of us think that we could do that. And to be really honest, I think that many of us probably are so overwhelmed by even those words, we know that we can't get anywhere close, so we almost don't even try. Right? It's like, it's like having a task so huge before you that it's not even worth taking the first step. An alcoholic imagining life without alcohol, putting aside the first drink, Someone who wants to lose 200 pounds thinking they're going to stop drinking soda because it's going to cut 1,000 calories out of their diet a day. But Paul doesn't leave us there and the Lord does not leave us there. It is possible. Paul gets specific. He says, therefore, each of you must, must do this. Put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer but must work doing something useful with their hands that they might have something to share with those in need. So, here's what it's like. You want to talk about what it's like to be holy and be like God? Okay, don't lie to one another. Keep covenant with one another because we're members of one another and one body. Don't sin when you're mad. Don't let your anger linger when you are mad so that Satan gets a foothold. When a thief becomes a Christian, he'll not only give up stealing, he'll get a job so that he can give to the needy. Live up to the call that you have received. And then I want to sit here for a minute. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only that which is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but say things that build people up. I think that's one of those things that seems so big that it's really not even worth jumping into. But let's talk about what this is. It's not only from lying that Christians should keep their mouths. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Paul tells the Colossians to put that type of language right out of your mouths. And by unwholesome language, here's what he's talking about. Okay? What is unwholesome language? That sounds like a, a Mr. Rogers kind of term, but here's what he means. He's talking about vulgar and obscene language. He's also talking about slander, mean-spirited, ugly words about others that tear them down. He's talking about any words that are detrimental to the person you're talking to, a person you're talking about, or a person who may overhear what you are saying. It includes talk about oneself that denies the image of God or the value of being a child of God. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. This is huge for Paul. He's going to come back to it later in Ephesians. It's huge for Jesus. Jesus warns us and he tells us, and this is sobering, so hear it. We will have to render account on the day of judgment for every careless word that we speak. As Christians, the language that comes out of our mouths, the language that should be on our lips, should be a means of grace to all who hear and all who are spoken of. Our words should be well chosen. They should, he talks about this in Colossians, they should be uttered always with grace and seasoned with salt. And this is not, it's not some type of false positiveness, right? It is not some kind of, of um, syrupy sweetness that we know reeks of insincerity. These are the words that flow from a heart of gratitude, gentle and patient, loving as Christ loved. Jesus says that the things that come out of a person's mouth come from their hearts. What's in your heart? If you want to know what's in your heart, hear what's coming out of your mouth. This is something you face daily. This is something I face daily. <clears throat> what words will we take up on our lips in community? And as I ask that question, I want to encourage you to think about a couple of things. One, being vulgar together is not an exercise in communal intimacy. It is a false sense of affection. If we are telling ourselves that when we have a special community where we can be as coarse and obscene, as vulgar as we want to be, because it draws us closer, it makes us tighter, it builds real brotherhood and real sisterhood, you are lying to yourselves. It is a false sense of affection. It builds something, but it is not depth. It builds barriers. In reality, I would say it's a whole lot more like cowardice because it masquerades as unity and camaraderie when it's in fact a poor substitute for words that strengthen and build. 
Paul says those are words that have no place on the lips of a Christian. If you have friends you regularly talk carelessly with, hear this. You are not loving them well. Your words impact the people to whom you speak. You impact their hearts. And instead of pointing them towards Jesus, you are tempting them to have hardened hearts and hardened consciences. Do not underestimate the power of words. When I do premarital counseling, one of the things that I talk about with couples, I say, don't ever, ever fight mean. Because you, as a spouse, have the ability with your words to change an entire lifetime of negative self-perception about someone. For someone who's never believed that they were beautiful or handsome, for their spouse to say, you are the most beautiful woman in the world, or you're the most handsome man I could have ever hoped to marry, that can change an entire lifetime of self-perception. But biting, cutting words can go to the heart of a person. They destroy, they tear us down. And friends, you have so much power with the words that you speak to those around you. Proverbs 18 talks about death and life are in the power of the tongue. We talk about words, even words about words are important. Words about words, how we talk about them. L listen to this. This is Frederick Beekner talking about words. He says, words written 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago can have as much of this power today as they ever had it then to come alive for us and in us and to make us more alive within ourselves. That, I suppose, is the final mystery as well as the final power of words, that not even across great distances of time and space do they ever lose their capacity for becoming incarnate. And when these words tell of virtue and nobility, when they move us closer to that truth and gentleness of spirit by which we become fully human, the reading of them is sacramental. And a library is a holy place, as any temple is holy, because through the words which are treasured in it, the word itself becomes flesh again and again and dwells among us and within us, full of grace and truth, powerful and edifying. And now hear these words from Joel Osteen. I am two of the most powerful words, for what you put after them shapes your reality. Drivel. That's not true. I am two of the most powerful words, for what you put after them shapes your reality. I am Godzilla, and my reality is not shaped by that. Nothing unwholesome, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And now we get to the very heart of it, right? If I were just to say, you should speak wholesomely because it's what Christians do, but there's a reality taking place that we all need to be aware of. It's a reality that happens with every Christian. The reality is this. You are in, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, and the Spirit is not a passive person occupied by other things. So Paul says this, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Imagine this, because this is true. This is our reality. 
The Holy Spirit of God is our seal that dwells within us until the day of judgment when Christ will return and we will be transformed and declared righteous in the judgment. And your words now, when they are gross and when they are obscene and when they are vulgar and profane and when they tear others down and when they tear self down and when they tear community down, the Holy Spirit of God feels the incongruous reality of what you are sealed for, eternity before God, and what's coming out of your mouth. The incongruity of whose you are, what you are called to, and what you are demonstrating actually is in your heart. Imagine that. That God himself by his Holy Spirit is indwelling you sealing you for the day of redemption. And he feels and knows and is grieved by the words that come out of your mouth because they show what's in your heart. Don't let any unwholesome talk be on your lips. Build people up with words. Live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come, breath, from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they might live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. The prophecy is about Israel, but we too have come from death to life. Let us live lives worthy of that calling. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are convicted to the very marrow of our being by your word. I pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, you would allow our hearts to be soft, that our consciences might indeed be pricked, that we might seek and desire holiness above all things. Help us, Lord, by your Spirit to tame our tongues, something we couldn't do by ourselves. Help us to speak words that build others up, build our community up, and that glorify you. Lord, help us to live lives worthy of the calling that you've issued to us by virtue of the death and the sacrifice of your Son, our Savior Jesus. We pray in his holy and mighty and gracious name. Amen.